Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. With me is Leah Kaufman. Leah, please tell us about today's podcast. You'll recall that in podcast number eight, we met Dr. Van Mao, a pioneer in regenerative medicine. In podcast number nine, we'll meet Dr. Savio Wu, who, along with Dr. Mao, has made important contributions to our understanding of joint biomechanics. Dr. Wu has even been awarded an Olympic gold medal for his contributions to sports medicine. Let's meet Dr. Wu now. We're joined today by Dr. Savio Wu. He's the Whiteford Professor of Bioengineering and the Director of the Musculoskeletal Research Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Along with Professor Van Mao, who our listeners have heard from already, Dr. Wu is one of the early pioneers in the field of orthopedic biomechanics. And he's going to tell us about just two of the very many things he's interested in today. Dr. Wu, I understand you have a big interest in ACL reconstruction. Can you tell us a bit about what the ACL is? It's one of our ligaments and why it's important to reconstruct it. Well, thank you. Um, ACL, or sometimes we call it anterior cruciate ligament of the knee, uh, is really a very good sized ligament is inside the knee. And it has uh, a kind of located in the slanted position, so it controls not only the anterior and posterior front and back motion of the tibia, which is leg bone, not the thigh bone, uh, but also it controls rotation. So it makes it uh, like it, does, it has multiple functions. So you can be injured because of that. You know, he protects us, but also you could be injured because of the forces that are applied to the knee, such as uh, we all remember Carson Palmer's tackle uh, injured both the ACL and the MCL, MCL being the medial collateral ligament. Um, that's a ligament, unfortunately, if you tear at the missubstance, has no possibility of healing. So the only way so far it's been done is by reconstruction using another part of the knee, such as the patella tendon, part of the patella tendon, which is the, the tendon connect the kneecap to the leg bone. Or sometimes we use the hamstrings uh, tendons to replace uh, the ACL surgically. Now, the incidence of ACL tear uh, probably anywhere between 100 to 200,000 a year in the United States alone. And probably one-third of the patients will, be, will need repair right away, surgical repair. Um, one-third can delay a little bit, and the one-third lucky ones, they don't need reconstruction. Uh, mostly those that tear off from the attachment at the femur, which is the uh, thigh bone. And then it has a way to kind of creep itself up to uh, heal. And although not a perfect ligament, but it's uh, functional. So this is being done every day. Uh, many uh, surgeons, knee surgeons, sports surgeons do this kind of surgery. Uh, but because of its complex function, uh, we need to study it and, uh, and find better way to repair it. Um, even though this is done so often, one interesting statistic is that if you look at the Medline publication for the last 10 years, 
There are probably 4,000 or more papers written about ACL reconstruction. And uh, about 50% of those papers are to do with uh, technique. So everybody has a technique of how to do ACL reconstruction. Actually, uh, my number shows 55%. And then 40% deal with complications. Wow. And 5% are devoted to outcome, clinical outcome studies. So it's a huge problem. It's being uh, uh, taken care of, you know. So, but this, there's a lot of residual issues with to, do, to do with ACL reconstruction that need to be studied. Therefore, at the MSRC, we are very interested in finding ways to better understand the function of the ligament as well as better way to evaluate the surgical reconstruction procedures as well as rehabilitation protocols. Okay. And that's why we are very excited about this kind of research. So you're hoping to better, and you already have bettered, um, the way that this ligament is reconstructed um, and um, improve healing. Um, I guess there's, I guess when you have something as important as a ligament, either grafted back in or put back together in some way, rehabilitation must be a very careful process, I imagine, because you've got sutures, you've got tissue that might be weak, you've got, I'm interested to hear that it heals better from the femur side. Is that because there's a better blood supply up there? Yeah, because actually, the big muscle? Yeah, there is a, um, a way the ligament can reattach. Part of it probably stick to the posterior cruciate ligament. Part of it is because the natural healing process from that end. Uh, but we really don't know. We just know that it's, uh, it's, it has you know, several of my very uh, good uh, friends in, that are orthopedic, well-known orthopedic surgeons that uh, told me that that's what's going on. Uh, are there, just um, an aside, are there people that are focusing on that healing mechanism and maybe trying to move it further down the ligament so we could get better healing along the length of the ligament? It doesn't quite work that way because it, once you get into the joint, inside the middle of the joint, the synovial environment is very tough for the healing tissue to take place, healing to take place, mm -hmm. as well as the, uh, the way the mechanical demand for the ACL makes it a uh, missubstance tear, very difficult. We have done, uh, years ago, we have done all kinds of ways trying to heal the ligament uh, that was uh, really unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who knows now with new uh, tissue engineering approach, uh, you know, there may be possibilities for us in the future. But the main thing is that if we don't understand the function of it very well, it's difficult to, uh, to find solutions. Um, I, I, I would like to talk a little bit about how an engineer views the ACL reconstruction. And I was leading in that way. Yeah, I'd like to know yeah. how one goes about studying such a thing. Yeah. And because first, we always want to know what the normal does. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not that easy to determine what the normal does, especially in vivo. Um, but Let's say if we know a little bit and we're trying to reconstruct it. Well, there are so many variables in surgical reconstruction. For example, uh, you have to pick 
what graph you like to pick. Now, right now, the most popular graphs are taking center, central part of the patella tendon with its bone attachment, called bone patella tendon bone replacement. That's very popular, and has been called the gold standard. And in recent years, people prefer to use hamstrings. Uh, take the, you know, two hamstrings. One is semitendinosus, the other one's gracilis. And then use that as replacement. Uh, so, can I interrupt you for yeah. a second? Are these the patient's own yeah. materials? That, oh, the, okay, so all there's the, a little they can the afford graphs, to lose yeah. in order to reconstruct well, their own ACL. Well, actually, whenever you take something away, something happens. Yeah. You know, so it's not that simple. Okay. And as a matter of fact, personally, I'm very interested to look at what happened to the patella tendon after you take it out. Um, then you, once you get the graft, replacement graft in hand, you say, now, where do I put the graft? You know, where do I put it? And that's a big issue. And you say, okay, we finally find a place where to put it that's appropriate. Then you say, well, how am I going to tension the graft so it's mm -hmm. like a normal and then how I'm going to fix the graph. And then you have to look at once you fix the graph, you want the bone to, usually you drill a couple holes, you know, to put the graph, thread the graph through. And then you say, well, how is this tendon or that replacement tendon going to heal with the tunnel? And then finally, you have to look at how the graph remodel in the process, because usually the graph weakens, and then before it, it recovers. But it never is quite normal. So even in spite of the ones that we, uh, we have been doing hundreds of thousands of ACL reconstruction, uh, we haven't even come close to what the normal ACL does. And uh, of course, there are other things you can help to keep knee stability. And of course, then you can do muscle training and all the strengthening, all these things you could do. So as you can see that that's the reason why we have so many papers on techniques, probably is that nobody is really satisfied with any technique they use for a long time, then they want to change some, they want to change here, change that. And uh, so our research has at least helped us to understand the complex anatomy and function of the ACL. Uh, right now, we are very much, for the, for the say last, uh, since 1995, uh, more than 10 years ago, we have uh, employed a robotics, a, a robot to couple with what we call a universal force moment sensor, which is a six degree of freedom, uh, measure the six uh, forces a moment, three forces, three moments in, in, in three dimensions. And we were able to at least separate the functions of one part of the ACL called the anterior medial part and separate from the posterior lateral part or AM or PL bundles. And we find that the posterior lateral part, although it's shorter and smaller, it is very important when the knee is near extension. You know, actually a lot of times ACL is injured with the knee extended or hyperextended. And then the, the bigger part is the anterior medial part and so we are starting to look at their functions under some relatively simple loading conditions. And we also discover how these, each bundle controls the anterior-posterior motion and the rotatory motion. Turn out the posterior 
lateral part, although small, very important for rotatory motion. So with that kind of knowledge, we went up and went ahead and do some scientific study using cadavers and the robotic system to evaluate surgical reconstruction. Um, just about that time, there seemed to be a lot of interest, uh, especially from Japan and then Europe on doing what they call anatomical double bundle ACL reconstruction. Uh, well, they're doing it. Japanese uh, are probably are the most uh, enthusiastic about this approach. Um, so what we have done is that we simply go to the robot and try to uh, you know, do this double bundle anatomical reconstruction versus a single bundle, because we can do on the same knee and compare them. And we find that indeed that the double bundle anatomical reconstruction is better for rotatory stability. Um, and and we, then after we've done that, we say, okay, now we know where to put it. Then now we, are, we have recently wrote a couple of papers on what's this angle of the knee, what's the flexion angle of the knee that you should put the knee in when you fix these grafts. Mm -hmm. And we also discovered that the posterior lateral bundle, you should fix it near extension. Mm -hmm. If you fix inflection, uh, the knee goes in extension, you're getting in trouble. And then the anterior medial bundle, you have a little more leeway. So right now, after a series of three studies actually now, we say that the posterior lateral bundle should be fixed at about 15 degrees and the anterior medial bundle anywhere between 15 to 45 degrees is relatively safe. Now, that is not to say that they're perfect, but they at least they're safe. They no won't be broken. So um, MSRC is very proud to have conducted these kind of studies so that our surgical friends can uh, go, if they want to reconstruct, they will they can do it with the basic science data. I'm curious to know how many other uh, operations have this sort of backing in basic science, actually. I, uh, how often does a surgeon get to see the results of a laboratory study where their repair is put under the same mechanical load or a similar mechanical load it might face in nature? It seems like a wonderful advantage. Well, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, at least those of us who... Uh, who are working in this field for a long time want to take our laboratory data and extend it to the clinical uh, arena, or else, you know, we why why should we do it? We we think it's very important. Uh, but I, I want to carry on a little bit, if I may, sure. uh, because uh, in, we 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 made a little mouse pad and, uh, <laughs> uh, to advocate this idea. Now that we've done a lot of. Uh, uh, in vitro work. But the ultimate thing is the loading condition in the laboratory is relatively simple. Mm -hmm. And of course, the knee is subjected to very complicated load, loading conditions and very large loads. Whether you want it or not, sometimes right. somebody tackles <laughs> you, for example. So right now, the main thing we have been advocating, uh, at least uh, uh, I have personally uh, been advocating since 1997 is the how are we going to move from in vitro to in vivo. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with these terms, 
Um, Dr. Wu means how do we go from laboratory work in, in vitro literally means in glass, yeah. does it not, to in vivo in people? Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Um, so far, when we do testing laboratory, we use the robot is on cadaveric type of specimens. But we want to go to say, what happens if we apply loading that are in vivo? Right mm -hmm. now, the loads apply maybe more like clinical examination type of loading, but didn't really, really force the need to do uh, with high loads uh, applied to it. So there, there are quite a few you know, methodologies available now are being developed to do these kind of measurements, um, namely uh, using uh, imaging techniques. So uh, one of the most exciting one is actually biplane fluoroscopy. And uh, the MSRC and Dr. Richard Stepman, who is probably one of the best known orthopedic uh, sports medicine doctors operating on all the world-class skiers, mm -hmm. uh, he, in his laboratory, they are buying a biplane fluoroscopy, two planes, so we can measure the bone motion uh, very closely to the level accuracy of about 0.1 millimeter. And this is an x-ray, isn't it? But it's an yeah, x-ray that works. Yeah, two x-rays, but continuously. So yeah. rather than you lying still on a table and having just a snapshot taken, it's an yeah. x-ray that works. Yeah. You could bend the knee, and you could yeah. see it on oh, a screen. Yeah. You could the, see inside what's happening on right, a screen. The patient could be doing physical activity, actually, mm -hmm. uh, if in, in that domain of the x-ray. Um, we want to get those data. We're working on it. Once we get those data, what we plan to do is take that data and put it on kinematics. Kinematics means motion in three-dimensional mm -hmm. space. Take this data and put it on our robot using cadaveric knees of similar age. And, but it's not a trivial thing to do, but we have ways to do it. And then we discover, uh, can using this motion, a complicated motion on the knee, and check out what the ACL is doing under those conditions. Now, if we can do that, then we can reconstruct the knee and using the same loading conditions or same kinematics and check out what the graph is doing. Mm -hmm. So that's a real way to evaluate whether your graph is really working or just you think it's working. So mm -hmm. this is what we're doing. But realizing this is a very you know tedious uh, uh, way to go. We, on the other hand, trying to develop mathematical models that are subject-specific, taking the scan, MRI, CT scan data of the knee, build a three-dimensional model, put the ligament on it, put the graph on it, and see if we, uh, those same motion will get the same result as we measure experimentally in the robot. Now, if they're validated, then the model is validated, model is a valid one, then we can use that model to predict other situations mm -hmm. that are not done in the experimental situation. You know, you can say, okay, I'm checking someone in a certain loading situation, but if the model works, I can simulate this person kicking a ball, punting a football, uh, doing gymnastic motions, we can look at them. And also, the model, if we use a finite element model, 
which is a specific mathematical representation of complex geometry, then we can calculate what are the internal forces, so-called stresses and strains. And we can get that data to people who want to do molecular uh, cellular science, say, okay, this is the level of stress. You look at what the cells are doing. Mm -hmm. So those are a very exciting way to go. And I think this is the way that we can generate database, age, gender, and then eventually really look at, evaluate various surgical procedures, rehabilitation protocols, and see if you are really getting the results you think you should get or you're going to get. And then with that, we improve patients' outcome. And I'm curious, what is the average lifespan of a reconstructed ACL right now? Can at 25, if I blew out my ACL um, because I got tackled during my weekly flag football game, <laughs> could I hope to live with that new ACL for the rest of my life, or would I have to return to the operating room in 15 years or so? Well, actually, uh, re-operating ACL usually is due to several factors. If, if everything is done correctly, it's, it's okay. But what happened is that usually we modify our behavior with age. Mm -hmm. We don't do so much jumping and twisting. We, we don't go on run so much. We run on treadmills. Everything is very steady using elliptical machines of that sort. So it's a behavior modification that help our need to survive. I see. But on the other hand, there are data out there that ACL reconstruction actually causes more osteoarthritis. And it's surprising, but uh, it could be due to many factors. Number one, it could be just that you are abusing the knee because you can. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas for someone who don't abuse them, they'll survive longer. But having said all that, there are a lot of other issues. You know, a second trauma, somebody tackle you again. Mm -hmm. uh, also, there's a lot of people, a lot of surgeons doing ACL that does not do a lot of ACL reconstruction every year. So, um, um, you know, this is a very precise surgery. So, uh, so a lot of times uh, you get misplacement of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. uh, all these errors could also cause problems. So right now there are a lot of what they call reoperating of ACL. is uh, uh, is a, a procedure that is done, but it's unlike a total joint replacement, you can expect the joint to last so long. But mm -hmm. ACL, basically, uh, um, it will, our study years ago had demonstrated ACL actually deteriorate very fast, the na natural ACL, na native ACL deteriorate very fast with age, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, when you're 40, your ACL is about half as stiff and strong as the 22. <sighs> so it really <laughs> comes back. Well, that's because the behavior changed. So it, maybe I'm not loading it as I should be in order to keep it, it strong. Preci precisely. Okay. Precisely. We are, not, we are not doing those crazy things that we used to do when we're 22. Yes, yeah. I see. Now, so. if an athlete who's relying on the strength and you know, functioning of their ACL for their living has a state-of-the-art ACL reconstruction. Everything's done perfectly. Technique is gold standard. Uh, can they return to 
a life as a, as a professional athlete? Oh, they do or are they all limited? The, they do all the time. Today, so we're getting pretty do, good at They do at all doing the time. This. And uh, sometimes uh, these athletes are very driven, you know. That's why they are professional, top-of-the-line athletes. They will work so hard to, you know, strengthen their knees, strengthen their muscle. Um, it's... it's uh, they're just not like you and me, you know. Uh, they are very driven, and they can make things happen. That, uh, but biology is biology, you know. We all remember Jerry Rice, you know, after six months, and he went back out this first play, you know, he tore his patella tendon yeah. where he took the graft. Yeah. So uh, it's it's uh, it's you 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 have to balance. Uh, we can only do so much. Uh, but we can even there's so much could be a lot if we do it right. Yes, yes, I can see that is the case. But speaking of professional athletes, I understand that you and Peekaboo Street, uh, world class skier, have a connection. Um, and I'll just go ahead and tell our listeners that Dr. Wu has received a gold medal from the International Olympic Committee for his contributions to sports science. And this is not a very common occurrence. There are just four other medals. Is that the case? Or four total? like this in the world. And that's because you have contributed so much to the to the whole field of sports science and keeping athletes going through some you know sometimes some very scary stuff. So tell me about getting your gold medal and where that happened and when. Well, thank you. Actually, uh you know, sometimes everything has a head. They you know, when you get a prize like that, it actually is uh a combination of work of many students, fellows, and colleagues. Uh, you know, they really deserve more credit than me. Um, but having said that, I, I'm very proud. Before I go into the detail about this uh, prize, uh, there is a gold medal, but also there is a prize of a quarter million dollars. Uh, unfortunately, I win it too early because the next fellow won it, gets half a million dollars. Ugh. Darn. Um, but we used that money to, uh, uh, my wife and I, uh, it's a, it's a um, tradition of ours that we don't keep price money. Mm -hmm. uh, so we established a Asian American, Asian and American Institute for Research and, and Education. So we have uh, supported quite a few fellows, projects, and things of nature, of that nature, and uh, and I have a very strong board with me, and it's actually a public charity. Mm -hmm. So for those listeners who want to contribute yeah. to our charity, please contact me. Uh, it's really for good cause, and we're very proud of it. Uh, Peekaboo won the uh, prize in 1998. I watched her. Uh, not She didn't win the downhill. She won the, the giant, uh, what do you call giant it? Giant slalom. Giant slalom. Mm -hmm. And uh, she won it by one one hundredth of a oh. second. And I was waiting for her to come down, you know. And after that, there were many more. So it was a very exciting. And Dr. Stepman and I were both there together. Um, and uh, after that, uh, I met her in Vail. And uh, we, we kind of exchanged uh, autographs, if you will, because Peekaboo is like that. If she signed autograph for you, she wants something back. Nice. That's the way. 
Yeah. And then she gave me her book. She signed her book for me, and I, I read her book. I really enjoy her philosophy of life. She's mm -hmm. a real wonderful young lady, not only a uh, tremendous athlete, but, uh, and of course, you all know that after, soon after the Olympics, she had a big accident. Mm -hmm. uh, she broke almost <laughs> quite a few bones and the ligaments again. Uh, but she came back. She actually, I think she won another World Cup race after that. It's a tremendous story. Um, the, the IOC uh, at that time, I think, you know, prize like this, uh, many people deserve prizes, like any mm -hmm. prize, but uh, it's you have good friends that you win prizes. So. Yeah. Well, and for all we're talking about, um, you know, accolades and honors and meeting famous people and athletes who benefit from improved techniques, the rest of us benefit eventually, too, from these improved techniques. Absolutely. I, I did not do research uh, with the purpose of benefiting just a few people. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always felt uh, what we do for Tom, Dick, and Harry, Jane and Joan are the most important things we do. Uh, but I actually have a more uh, uh, altruistic reason of doing what I do. Um, that's because I enjoy teaching. Uh, I at the MSRC, our, our motto is uh, education through research. We just happen to teach research. We want to teach everyone to come by. Uh, in the last 15 years since I came to University of Pittsburgh after 20 years at University of California, San Diego, MSRC has uh, about close to 600 people have gone through our center. Uh, through various ways, shape, and form, length of time, uh, learn how to do research, uh, what would I like to think the right way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is what we do. Um, uh, I think that's probably the most gratifying thing I do. I want to ask you a couple of questions to wrap up. Um, one is about your take on functional tissue engineering. And this is a phrase our listeners were introduced to with Dr. Mao. Um, who's your contemporary. So tell us about functional tissue engineering. Yeah, functional tissue engineering. I'm sure Van had told you about, Dr. Mao has had told you about the history of tissue engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm fortunate to be one of the original uh, uh, group that, and, uh, with Dr. Y.C. Fung at UCSD, my mentor, uh, coined that term. But I think tissue engineering has changed a lot. And uh, actually, not so much the term, but uh, what we are doing. Uh, but I think people you know, like us who are more biomechanics-oriented uh, ori uh, like to think about things has to work. It's, it's just if you only work in a Petri dish, it's not working. Mm -hmm. uh, so. I think that's why the functional tissue engineering term comes. Functional, it could be function at the cellular level, at the, uh, at the tissue level, at the body level, it's, you know, it could, even at the molecular level. So, but it has to work. It sounds to me that's the, the putting the engineering in bioengineering. It's one thing to draw it or to think of it. 
And it's another to get the robot and program it with those six points upon which it loads a cadaveric knee to understand exactly. That's the function in, in functional yeah. engineering. Well, yeah. that's the, where we want to go to. Yeah. But in our center, we also study mechanobiology. We mm -hmm. look at the cellular function and how do they uh, work you know, in a specific, how the mechanical environment can change the cell function. And uh, we actually are very interested in working on scaffolds with Dr. Steve Badalak mm -hmm. here at the Our Merrim. listeners have, I'm just yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but our listeners will remember that they've heard from Dr. Badalak um, pretty early in our series of podcasts about his work using scaffolds to yeah. reconstruct soft tissue. Exactly. And uh, we have been using the porcine small, uh, you know, small intestine, some mucosa, SIS, uh, to actually encourage the ligament to heal better and faster. And uh, we were successful to do that using on the mediocladal ligament or the MCL. And now we are very excited about extending that to apply to the patella tendon because we take a third of the patella tendon with bone for ACL reconstruction. So we're using SIS now, having some very interesting results also uh, noticeably, it heals faster and better. Okay. Uh, but it's a little early uh, to talk too much about it. But the MCL is definitely, uh, it not only is mechanically improved, histologically improved, under transmission electron microscopy, the collagen fibril diameter is more, and the type 5 collagen is reduced, because too much type 5 collagen is also not good. Mm -hmm. um, and we just really are able to improve the property of the, uh, and then the function of the healing ligament. And finally, I'd like to ask you where your field will be in five years. Oh, I think that the field is, uh, hopefully we're moving more to in vivo uh, type of study. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's very important not to get too caught up on these uh, future a prediction. Uh, I always feel that uh, uh, when uh, you know you read newspaper and listen to television, sometimes you you hear very optimistic uh, forecasts. I really believe in science going around circles. You gain a little bit of information, you go start again. You gain a little more information, you get better and better. Hopefully, in this circular event, you are moving forward. So I, I frankly do not want to predict what are we going to do five years from. I just think that we hope we are better than we are today uh, with diligence. But having said that, I feel one thing is most important is the collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently heard a lecture from Dr. Sahuni, uh, NIH. He's talked about team research, but you know, this is something that I've been speaking for a long, long time. You need engineers, you need biologists, uh, you need uh, physical therapists, you need immunologists, you need histology, you need clinicians, uh, statisticians. They all have to work together. And um, that's why at the MSRC, we have, we have laboratory that has no, uh, it's not like divided each room, each room. We have a huge room, mm -hmm. and uh, so that people can communicate uh, easily. 
without having to go out the door and go in another door. I mm -hmm. think that is a detriment already for mm -hmm. collaboration. If you can stand up and yell across the room, hey, you know, and usually the collaboration is better. And Good. that's what we're trying to do. Sounds like you've had a lot of success. And we'll look forward to hearing about future successes. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be able to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, Leah. Those of you who are interested in learning more about Dr. Wu, including his Asian American Fellowship Program, can find links at our website. Leah, what's our next podcast about? In podcast number 10, we'll meet Dr. Patrick Crego of the Cleveland Functional Electrical Stimulation Center. He's working on the next generation of so-called neural prosthesis. These arm reach and hand grasp devices use electrical implants to prompt movement in muscles, giving more function to people with spinal cord injuries. That's podcast number 10 coming to you in early June. If you have ideas for future podcasts or would like to give us feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Please remember we can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And I must remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. But we do hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of Regenerative Medicine Today, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Thank you, Leah. And please remember the feed is available at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We thank you for joining us and hope you'll join us again in a few weeks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>